We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Good evening. Oh, come on now. Good evening. Thank you. I appreciate that. You got to give me some energy back, all right? This is my third. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, so today I wanted to share with you a little bit about what God's doing in my life. But before I do, I wanted to share, did you know that Park Street is on the Freedom Trail and it just opened this week? Did you know that? It is true. So this week you can come here, you can bring your friends, and you can learn the history. Here's an example of the history you could learn if you came through here. Did you know 200 years ago the tallest building in America is this one? 27 people built this church 200 years ago and they said, "Mm, let's make it the tallest one in America. So they did. It was the tallest one for 30 years. That's something you could learn on the Freedom Trail right here at Park Street Church. Did you also know that the NAACP which is having their national convention here in Boston this weekend. The first uh, location that it was opened, the Boston chapter was in this church right here. There's a lot of interesting facts. Go get yourself an education. <laughs> if you're wondering, oh, this is a different pastor every week I come here, what's the deal? Uh, where, where's the other pastors? Where'd they go? So Pastor Mark, where in the world is Pastor Mark? He is in Japan, or he was in Japan recently, visiting our missionaries there. We have two families in Japan. Did you know that Japan is the second least country as Christian in the nation, in the world? Second least Christian. So we have two families there trying to change that. And um, he is visiting there, and he's also visiting another place that I think is undisclosed. I'm not sure what you can say and what you can't, but let's just say it's Asia, another part. And that's where Mark is now, and he'll come back. He's with Julian, the missions pastor. They will return Don't worry, the preaching will improve, but for now, you get me. Today, the title of this message is, The Lord Cares for Me. The Lord Cares for Me. As we look in Psalm 40, we see that the Lord cares for David. As we look at the Lord and we see that he is a caring God, our God is a caring God. He doesn't just care for David, but I hope, my hope, today is that you'll be encouraged to know that the Lord cares for you. Did you know that the Psalms are the most read book in the Bible? It's not Genesis, it's not Proverbs, it's not Exodus, it's not the Gospels, it's not Acts or Revelation. It's the book of Psalms. These prayers, these 150 prayers. Why do people turn to them most when they're looking to hear from God? Why the Psalms? What's in them that's so important, that could encourage us in our walk with God. Let's see what some famous Christians have to say about the Psalms. Joni Erickson Tata, who spent much of her life in a wheelchair, says, the Psalms wrap nouns and verbs around our pain better than any other book. R.C. Sproul, theologian, says, whenever I read the Psalms, I feel like I'm eavesdropping on a saint having a personal conversation with God. Saint Augustine says, if the Psalms pray, you pray. If the Psalms lament, you lament. If the Psalms exalt, you rejoice. 
If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything written here is a mirror for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The more deeply we grow into the Psalms, the more often we pray them as our own, the more simple and rich will be our prayers. C.S. Lewis. Many think C.S. Lewis is an Englishman. I too thought that. But this week in my research, I found he's an Irishman. And that makes all the difference to me. <laughs> he's an Irishman that studied and then worked in England. That doesn't make you an Englishman. No, no, no. He says this about the Psalms. Most emphatically, the Psalms must be read as poems, as lyrics, with all the licenses and all the formalities, the hyperboles, and emotional rather than logical connections, which are proper to lyric poetry. Otherwise, we will miss what is in them and think we see what is not. Billy Graham. That's right. My next quote is from Billy Graham. He says, I used to read five psalms every day. That teaches me how to get along with God. Then I read a chapter of Proverbs every day, and that teaches me how to get along with my fellow man. Why do Christians love the psalms? What is God trying to teach us through them? I took a seminary class on psalms and biblical poetry, and I remember it well. It was difficult. The professor started with a question to us, and it's a question I'll pass on to you. He asked us, how many of you read poetry beyond the Bible? How many of you read poetry on a regular basis? Not many of us raised our hands, so don't feel bad. We're seminary students, but I will pass that question on to you. Friends, how many of you read poetry on a regular basis outside the Bible? How many? If you do, don't be ashamed. Oh, very nice, very nice. We've got some poets in the room, very nice. And then this is what he said. Well, how are you going to understand the Bible if you don't read poetry? A third of the Bible, more than a third, is written in poetic form. It's in Genesis. It's in Psalms. It's in Proverbs. It's in the prophets, both major and minor. It's in the New Testament and Revelation and in the Gospels. Often the Gospels are quoted. Jesus is quoting the Psalms. How can you understand the Word of God if you don't know how to read poetry? Ouch. Well, good news is it's not that hard to understand poetry. And here's some of the tricks. Well, this is some of the tricks that I can remember from a long time ago in seminary. <laughs> poetry, if you listen to the songs, how many of you listen to music on a regular basis? Oh, yeah, 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 thank you. Most of, most of the songs that we listen to are poetry. Some of them are story and more like Proverbs, but most of it, mo not like Proverbs, but more like um, story with a beginning, middle, and an end. But most of it is poetry. So you have listened to some a good bit of poetry, probably. But here's one thing I want to pass on, is Hebrew poetry is different from English poetry. English poetry is largely based on rhyme and meter. There's a famous quote. I think it's from... Somebody help me out with some poetry knowledge here. If you do some poems and you don't have rhyme or meter, it's like playing tennis without the net. Who's that? Frost? Is it Frost that said that? I think it's Ross. Look it up. Not while I'm talking, but look it up later. Let me know. Okay, so you can see that it's a big deal in English poetry. The, the musical style of the words matter. But in Hebrew poetry, that is not the way it goes. In Hebrew poetry, it's more on repetition 
and they change the way they're saying the sentence. It's similar, but it's not the exact same, and it's often in parallel form, one than the other. And they do a few other things, of course. But it's largely not based on the sounds of the words, which is good for us, because we don't read Hebrew. We read English, and it's good for everybody in all languages. So God knew what he was doing when he wrote a third of the Bible in poetic form, and he used Hebrew, at least for the Old Testament version of it, he knew it would translate well, and it does translate well. Psalms are for the community. They're not just for us individually. There's 150 psalms in the Bible, and there are five books that contain them. Psalm 1 starts with, blessed is the man. Psalm 2 also talks about uh, the Lord is blessed at the end of Psalm 2. Did you know at the end of book one, it, it ends on uh, 41, Psalm 41, and it ends with talking about blessed is the Lord. There's only two other places that the word blessed is used in this first book, and it's in Psalm 2, and it's in Psalm 40, the one we're looking at today. It's in verse 4, blessed is the man. So you can see at the end, in the beginning of this first book, the word blessed kind of shows this is the beginning and the end. Psalms are basically two major categories. There's one that is praising of God. The psalmist, it's often David, is thanking God, talking about how beautiful and how amazing he is and what he has done. But the second half of the psalms are often frustration and laments and concerns and God, how long do I have to wait for you? How long? We can relate to some of these. These are the two basic categories in the psalms. And Psalm 41, interestingly, has both. Often in Psalms, it will start with more the lament or the asking. God, how long do I have to wait for you? Where are you? I've been searching for you, God. You know, King Saul is trying to kill me. You're going to let him do that? All these kind of things. And then about halfway through, God has touched David's heart or the psalmist's heart, and it changes into praise. But in our Psalm today, it's the opposite. It actually starts with praise, and then it ends with a petition. And some even think that there are two psalms glued together. I, however, think not. I think it is one psalm, and it's an example of how we can pray. Isn't it a true picture of our prayers? How we can oscillate between trusting God and waiting on him. And later we can ask him, where are you? How long do I have to wait? This is real prayer. These are the Psalms. Let's pray together and dive deeper. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for being able to gather here today in a building that's been used for prayer to you for over 200 years. I pray you'd use this time. These people have given up this time to be here to worship you. Lord, I pray you'd feed us, encourage us to grow in you. Help us love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have heard of the Irish rock band, U2? Have you heard of them? Raise your hand. If you're, okay, yes, good. The other people, you need an education. <laughs> U2, you may know, is an Irish rock band, but you may not know that three of the members claim to be Christian, including the lead singer, Bono. Bono loves the Psalms, and he actually uh, wrote about it and spoke about how much he loved this one translation of the Bible called The Message. 
And this professor of seminary, Eugene Peterson, he translated the Bible and made it more kind of common English language, vernacular or whatever, just something normal spoken. And he loved that. Bono loved it and he talked about it. And somebody uh, went to Eugene Peterson, who's in his class, and he said, oh, did you know that Bono likes your translation? And Eugene says, who's Bono? <laughs> Eugene wasn't really into pop culture so much. Eventually, Bono reached out to him and said, I'd like to meet with you and get to know you better and, and just share about how much your work has impacted me. And Eugene was like, nope, I'm busy. And people were like, you turned down Bono? You didn't want to see him? And he's like, I was meeting with Isaiah. I'm translating the Bible, and I'm on Isaiah, and I've got to finish. I have a deadline. So Bono can wait. And Bono did wait. Eventually, they did meet up, and they had a great conversation. And actually, you can go to YouTube, and you can see you know, a 20-minute version of their dialogue, and it's really encouraging. And Bono shares about how the Psalms have touched him and meant a lot to him. Here's some quotes from Bono about the Psalms. What's so powerful about the Psalms? They're gospel and songs of praise. They are also the blues, says Bono. Bono goes on, the psalmist is brutally honest about the explosive joy that he's feeling and the deep sorrow and the confusion. And it's that that sets the psalms apart for me, the confusion and the sorrow. Since I'm an Irish American, growing up in the Boston area, I was a U2 fan, like many of us. And then I became a Christian in college. And I started noticing the music that they sang had another meaning, and I didn't even notice it before. It had a lot of Bible basic meaning in it, but you could easily miss it. So one of their most famous songs, Where the Streets Have No Name, if you go listen to it again, you realize they're talking about heaven. And in fact, you know, U2 is uh, it's the most, um, they've had the most tours, most audience in the past 40 years of a band. I know Taylor Swift's given them a run for it, that's for sure. But she's got a while to go. 40 years, we'll see where you are, Taylor. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> so they've been on the road a lot. And you know what their most frequent end of the concert song is? The end of the concert's either the grand finale or something, I don't know, something that stays with you when you leave the concert. The most common song they play is from Psalm 40. And the title of the psalm is 40. And the first three verses of Psalm 40 is basically the verses of the song. And then the refrain is basically the prayer of the second half. And the refrain is how long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? They sing it over and over again. Let's take a look at what they're talking about. Let's take a look at Psalm 40. If you have your Bible with you, please open it to Psalm 40 right now. It begins with, I've waited patiently for the Lord who heard my cry. He saved me from the pit of destruction. And just that key concept that he waited patiently for the Lord. And then God heard his cry and he saved him from the pit of destruction. Isn't this a great testimony? David's often on the run. He was calling out to God to save him. And here he's remembering how God did save him. He waited patiently for God to act, and God did. To save David from the pit of destruction, I hope you are encouraged. Whatever challenges you face, if God can save David from the pit of destruction, he can save you. We all need saving, the Bible tells us. 
David is not just writing for himself. He is writing for all of us. We all have been saved from destruction. That is what Jesus has done for us. This psalm starts with such a praise. What is the right response? If you look at verse 3, he says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So David's response was one of praise, but he also knew his response was linked to many others who would put their trust in the Lord. It is not just for David. Your walk with God and your testimony is not just about you. Many are linked to you, and God is calling you to share how he has blessed you with others. Jumping to verse 9 and 10, David has told the glad news of his deliverance. He has not restrained his lips. David has not hidden God's deliverance within his heart. He spoke of God's faithfulness and his steadfast love. David has a testimony of God's love, and he has shared it. This, too, is our job. When God does something in your life, your job is to share it. Did you know, when I was in seminary, we did, our whole class went on a missions trip. Guess where we went? We went to Paris. What a tough missions trip that was. I'm sure you can only imagine it. You know, we had pastries and coffee and two-hour lunches. It was amazing. But did you know to actually minister as a Christian minister in Paris is quite difficult. Can you believe that? What's so difficult about Paris? Well, Paris has a cultural thing that you're not supposed to talk about Jesus or faith. That's supposed to be a personally held thing. You, you can sit in your coffee shops and talk about all sorts of things. You can have your two-hour lunches and talk about all sorts of things, but keep your faith to yourself. And that's how Paris rolls. And you know what happens in the church when that's the rules of the culture? The church shrinks. Because if no one hears about Jesus, how he answers prayer, how he does big things in our life and small things, then no one cares about Jesus. But there's another group of Parisians that do not go by these rules. They are the Caribbean Parisians. And the Caribbean Parisians don't care about those Parisian rules. They're there and they have been touched by God. And they share about him. And they do it with a smile. And they aren't afraid to be like, oh, you're talking about a private matter. They're like, it's not private to me. And so they share and they have a glow. And their churches are growing. Their churches are alive. And they're full of faith. Park Street, which kind of French person do you want to be? <laughs> do you want to be the kind that is so serious and accomplished and and, and drinking great wine and whatever, but you don't share about what God is doing in your life, big or small, or do you want to be like the Caribbean Parisians that have been touched by God, they're full of joy, and they share. They share what God has done in their life. My friends, which ones do you want to be? Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's keep moving. The second section we will look at is in verse 4 and 5. Before we look there, I have a question for you. Who do you trust? Really, who do you trust? Do you trust your CV, your bank account, your success at work or at school, your perfect image on Instagram, 
or maybe your place in this church. Here is what the scriptures say. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. This person, man or woman, is blessed for trusting the Lord. They do not turn to the proud. They do not go after a lie. Who are the proud? In Boston, in the religious circles, there's a lot of pride. In Boston, there's a lot of pride, politically, in education, and in sports. There are lies that go along with it. If I have a great education, or my kids do, I will have a good life. Salvation through education is a lie. I'm a grad minister. I see that all the time. If I have a right political belief and advocate for them, political salvation is a lie. Many live as though they will never die. They never consider life after death. These are Boston people. Salvation through health care, even Boston health care, is a lie. Also, if my team wins, then I am a winner. And this one is difficult for me. Salvation through sports is a lie. Whatever it is, that temptation that you face, say no to it. If my family is perfect, then I'm a good person. Say no to that. Trust in the Lord. His wondrous deeds, none can compare. If we get off track and we start believing these lies, and it can happen to any of us, myself included, we need to draw back to Jesus and go back to him. I was reading a book this summer, a small book. Don't be too impressed. It's not very large. Not a poetry book like you poets. But I was reading a small book, and it was written by a friend of mine, and he actually was in my student ministry 20 years ago. And he wrote this book about the secret place. And we all need a secret place and to meet with God, and it should be our highest priority in our life. And it was very instructive to me. And it was a little embarrassing to learn from a student that I had trained many, many years ago. But he's gone on to bigger and better things. And I would like to read a little portion of that to you. It's by a guy named Jake Kale. Not famous yet. May never be famous, but he's famous in my heart. So here we go. The one thing that is needed is to intimately know God because everything else will flow out of that. This only happens as we prioritize the secret place and find our delight in God himself. To be clear, the problem is not serving as we are all called to serve in various ways. It is a matter of order and priority. Relationships with God must come first. Serving, ministry, business, work, or other activities. Serving becomes a distraction when it is more important than intimacy with God. It is time to become a people of his presence, a people who seek his face above all else. The top priority of a Christian is to be with Jesus and to know him. God is worth it. Let's trust him above all else. Come back to him. If you've strayed, summer is a great time to do this. Maybe you have more time in your life, more spare time. I encourage you to invest that time in your relationship with Jesus. The third and final section we will look at is in verse 6 and 8, 6 through 8. 
it begins, and this connects to Jesus. It begins, in sacrifice, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And it connects to the New Testament reading we had read earlier, written a thousand years later, quoting these same verses. And it applies it to Jesus. Jesus as his sacrifice. It says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken pleasures in. It goes on to say, we have been sanctified through the offerings of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Then it says, Christ has offered for all time a sacrifice for sins. Christ came to end all sacrifices. So you don't need to keep on sacrificing for Jesus. He is the perfect sacrifice. You don't need a priest because Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus doesn't want our sacrifice. He wants our heart. He wants our love. So if we come to church just out of obligation, that's not what he wants. He wants us to come to him, whether here in church or privately on your own, out of love. God does something more. He puts his law on our heart. So we're not trying to please him. Jesus has already done this. God has put his law on our heart. Those of us who believe, and the Holy Spirit's the one who does this. We now need to follow our God-directed heart. Not a heart of selfishness, but our God-directed heart. How do we do this? I pray and read the Bible, and I try to follow what I'm sensing God doing in my life. God's law is on your heart. His joy is also there. So be guided, be guided by God in the scriptures and in your heart. How many of you know of Tim Keller, the former pastor of Redeemer in New York City? If you do, raise your hand. Okay, great. If you don't, get reading out there. Tim Keller, did you know he read the Psalms every day for over 10 years? He read five Psalms a day. And in one month, he would get through the whole of it, 150 Psalms. He did this for 10 years. He was a godly man who did a lot for God, and yet he stayed humble. I listened to his sermons for two years while I served in China. Here's what he has to say about Psalm 40. But when you look at Psalm 40, we see absolutely nothing to indicate that the speaker is Jesus or some messianic figure. Why would the author of Hebrews assume that Psalm 40 was about Jesus? He does so because he knows what Jesus told the disciples in Luke 24 that all the scriptures is really about him. The Bible in the end is a single great story that comes to climax in Jesus Christ, says Tim Keller. God doesn't want us to do sacrifices. He wants us to love Jesus. For those that don't know much about Tim Keller, I think we can learn and grow a lot from him and his life. He died two months ago. He became a Christian while in college through the ministry of university. He got drawn into a Bible study and they were talking about how God loves all sorts of people. And that drew him in and he wanted to know more. He then went to seminary in the Boston area at Gordon-Conwell. There he met his wife, who when she was a teenager, she was a pen pal with C.S. Lewis. 
He then served for InterVarsity staff for a couple years, but he really found his niche later in life when he went to New York City to plant the church. And people thought he was crazy to going secular, money-loving New York City. They don't love God. How are you going to have a church there? Well, God blessed it. And in years, it grew to over 5,000 people. Tim would preach four sermons every Sunday. And I can tell you, preaching sermons is exhausting. And he would do it in two different, two different locations. He would preach one in the early service, in the early part of the morning service, and he would go across town and preach the second half of another service. And then in the evening, he would do the reverse. He did this for many years, like many, like 25 years. He wanted to share the good news, and he was humble as he did it. In his spare times, he would write books about Jesus that were New York Times bestsellers. When I hear that Tim Keller read the Psalms, five Psalms a day, for over 10 years, it teaches me how God was forming him. The last time I preached here, the last two times, I shared a little bit about what God is doing in my life and the testimony he has given me. Five years ago, my daughter got sick. Her name is Grace. She was almost, she was a year and a half, and she started walking badly. We took her to the doctor, and we found that they thought she had a disease, 90% certainty that she had a disease that would end in death. We were a mess. We asked people in this church to pray and to fast. And many in this church did pray and fast for my daughter, Grace. And I thank you. And good news, God healed her. She is not dying. She's expected to live a long and happy life. She's seven years old now, and she learned how to ride a bike this summer. Let's praise God. There's still an ongoing prayer request, of course. You know, any parent will have more prayer requests for their daughter, and I do too. Uh, she's trying to learn how to read. I'm her teacher. You can pray for me. And reading's difficult. It's a little extra difficult for Grace. But you can pray that she would learn how to read. She's getting ready for first grade this summer, at the end of the summer. And we look forward to that. So last time I spoke about fasting and how God taught me about fasting through that difficult period in my life. You may have a smaller testimony to share, and I want to encourage you to share it. It doesn't have to be something like that, and I hope it's not. That's heart-wrenching to go through. But maybe God gave you a job, or got you into a school, or he helped you lose that eight pounds, or you finally got out of that COVID funk you've been in. That's something to praise God about. Share that praise. Share it with your, your family. Share it with your friends here at church. Share it with your neighbor, your classmate, or your coworker. Don't be the Parisian French that shares it with no one. That is not the way to be. But I want to share what God's been teaching me more recently. More recently, uh, if you want to be diehard and read five psalms a day, like Tim Keller, that's plan A. Go for that. I recommend that strongly. Jason, especially you. That's for you. But for those of us who are looking for a little bit of an easier start, then here's an easier start. Once a week, I go on a prayer walk with God. Well, how do I do that? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Thank you for asking. So I take out my big headphones, and I walk down the street, and no one, everybody knows when you got the big headphones on, don't talk to that guy. He's got headphones on. But it's Boston. They probably weren't going to talk to you anyhow. <laughs> so I'm going on my walk, 
And the first half of the walk, I'm playing Christian music. I'm playing praise music, something that helps me forget about my cell phones, my emails, my kids, and everything else, and helps me focus on God. And I do that for half my walk. And it's great. And I don't get to choose the songs. You know, Pandora or whoever chooses them for me. But I fast forward the ones. They always try to choose in some secular stuff. And I dump it. I'm trying to learn, trying to praise Jesus right now. Not you too, but this, not you too at this very time. So I praise God for the first half of the walk. And then the second half of the walk, I turn off the music. But I leave the phones on so that people know, leave that man alone. And the second half, I bring my prayers to God. And I pray about whatever's going on in my life. I start with my family, and I ask God to help me be a better parent than I am, help me be a better husband than I am. And I bring up things with my work, my ministry. What about these students? Oh gosh, these students. And I pray about them. And at one point, I try to pray for Boston, because Boston needs a revival, and I pray for a revival in Boston. And it's happened before, and it can happen again. So I invite you to pray. If, you, if you're looking for something to pray about, that's one thing you pray about. And I pray for the students. I pray for this church. And I, I, I encourage you to pray. When, when Boston starts going to church, you know what they call it in America? They call it a great awakening. Because the rest of America goes to church, but when Boston goes, they're like, whoa, something's happened. And so that's, that's what I do. And you can do it in 20 minutes, you can do it in 10 minutes, or you can take longer if you have it. And I encourage you, even today or tomorrow, to go on a prayer walk and try to do it once a week. Or go for five psalms a day. Looking at you, buddy. <laughs> so those are just some options for you. But here we are. We're going through this psalms of Jesus this summer. But it would be so sad to me if you walked away from this summer with a ton of knowledge about the psalms and nothing in your life changed. If it didn't revitalize your relationship with God, that would be so sad to me. Boston's full of people with lots of knowledge and no spiritual life. That is not what we're looking for. My hope for you, whether you remember what I just said or not, my hope is that you would have a hunger for God and you'd want to spend time with him. Whether it's reading psalms, listening to music, going on walks, however. But my hope is that you'd see that Jesus is worth it. He loves you. And he wants to spend time with you. And it's more important than whatever else we're doing. Let's pray together. Lord God, help us put down our cell phones and walk with you. Lord God, help us come to you with our cares. Help us, if we're lonely, be filled with your love. Help us know how to share about your love with others. Lord, we thank you for those Caribbean Parisians and how they had joy in the midst of a difficult city. Lord, help us have the joy of you, Jesus, and help us share with those spiritually in need around us. We love you, Lord God. Amen.